Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, amen. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. podcast um, in this uh, the the week after Reformation Day slash Halloween weekend um, what were you for Halloween Michael I was the guy who sat at home and gave out candy to the children I don't dress up for Halloween I think it's kind of weird and creepy when adults do it oh all right all right fair enough uh, I ended up having to go to a uh, a Halloween party because well, my wife is the head of the graduate organization in the English department, and they always arrange one. And being the the first man, I guess, uh, there's no way I can get out of it. The first dude. First dude. Um, what about you, Nathan? I was the angry father in the emergency room. The angry father in the emergency room. Mad yeah. Dog Gilmore is on the prowl. Yeah, there is a tale of woe lying behind that, dear listeners, um, which uh, I, I don't suppose you want to tell, Nathan, but um, just... Uh, well, only that it took us three and a half hours to get a ten-minute strep test. Ah, <laughs> oh, lordy. Well, so I, I guess prayers are craved for um, the, 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 the Gilmore household as they deal with, I guess, strep. The little Gilmores. I'll much better. Mm. All right. Well, um, let's see. Before we dive into our topic, I reckon we ought to uh, uh, check and see what's on our blog this week. Um, I saw some links. Uh, what else do we want to point out? Uh, this week's Bible post is actually not on next Sunday's lectionary readings. It is on All Saints Day. Uh, I figured this much neglected day of remembrance ought to be part of our blog's contribution, so you can take a look at that. Also, Michael, you wrote something on the deus what? I, it's a term I invented, as far as I can tell. The deus obliviscitis, the forgetting <laughs> god, as opposed to the absent god. Uh, it's about, it's about uh, basically noir fiction, so people can go read that. Well, I, Now that I I'm finally it. writing blog posts again, I have two lined up, so the next two weeks you'll, uh, you'll be treated to my thoughts as well. Well, I'm I'm very interested in in the whole noir thing, so yeah, I, I enjoyed it very much, and I do recommend it, listeners. Um, by all means, check that out. And if somebody knows a more proper theological term than Deus Obliviscitus, they can keep it to themselves because that's awesome. <laughs> it is pretty awesome, especially because it's Latin. Um, have we got any feedback this week? I, I haven't heard. We had an enormous amount of feedback actually, and um, for the first time, I think we got. A piece of feedback after we recorded one show and before it came out, which has never happened before. So this this uh, should have gone on to last week's, but we got an email from a person I've never heard of named Gary Shirk, uh, who's, who's apparently a new listener. 
and he he recommends that I'll just read the email altogether. I'm interested in authors who fully acknowledge the accepted science related to evolution, but who then attempt to reconcile traditional Christian religion within that evolutionary background. I'm not talking about advocates of creation science or even intelligent design. I mean guys who totally agree with accepted science as we understand it today, but who search for some sort of purpose and a role for religion. And then he gives a few examples, um, one of which I have to read from my dissertation. Uh, I am not sure the three of us have the proper scientific knowledge to go into a full-on evolutionary discussion. Are you guys, do you guys agree with that? I think uh, I'll recommend that the Gary Shirk, was that the name, Michael? Yes. Uh, and anyone else interested in the theological implications of evolution, go over to the Homebrewed Christianity podcast. Fuller, uh, mm. one of the hosts over there, is very, very interested in that question. And they've done several episodes on it. So it is now, it is now uh, the time to say that we do not agree with everything <laughs> they say at Homebrewed Christianity. <laughs> All I was going to suggest is rather than listen to us do it poorly, you can go over there and listen to Trip do it well. Yep. We also had, um, last week, both David and I made several rather controversial statements in mocking people who redefine the terms of Christianity. Uh, and then I believe I dared somebody to splice that together and embarrass us. We actually got two people <laughs> who, who did that for us. One was uh, Sam Mulberry, our uh, friend from the CWC podcast. The other is Nate Becker, who actually you know, inspired last week's episode altogether. Now, I'm not going to play Sam's because he just cut, cut out uh, something I said and put it in. You'll hear it anyway. Nate actually went through the trouble of putting together a uh, big bumper. I think it's more than a minute long. Well, you'll see. I'm, I'm going to play it right now. So enjoy, and uh, we'll be back right afterwards. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do. You're listening loud to the Christian Humanist Podcast. Jesus saves sinners, and by Jesus, I mean a particular purple horse, which I once owned, and by saves, I mean gives popsicles to. I'm a Christian, by which it, I mean that there is only one God, and Muhammad is his prophet. So thank you, Nate Becker, for your uh, your help, and I hope you enjoyed the episode you inspired. <laughs> well, it was certainly a lot of fun to do, and uh, yeah, listeners, we yeah, even when uh, you know sometimes you you uh, you pitch something over our heads, we love uh, getting requests for topics uh, because sometimes our own imaginations run dry, and it is always interesting to. Uh, uh, to hear what our in, what our, our listeners are interested in, or at least what they think we're competent to speak to. So, so we hope you'll keep listening and writing in, Gary Shirk. Indeed. Well, with all that business done, let's get on uh, to with our discussion and introduce our topic. Listeners, this is the first week of a trilogy that we're doing on music. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about music in church, music in worship, Next week, Nathan Gilmore is going to be directing a conversation about classical music, and then Michael Farmer is going to round it out uh, with a discussion of Christian contemporary music. Is that correct, Michael? Yes, or Christian rock. I don't know if I listen, if I know much of the CCM, 
proper, but uh, I know the Christian rock fairly well. All right. Well, that'll, 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 that'll be interesting when we get to it. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, doing a great deal of Bach next week, Nathan. But in the meantime, uh, let's get on to today's topic. Um, among ourselves, we've, uh, you know, we've talked about this before. Uh, the different kinds of backgrounds that we've come from, the different churches that we've been in, uh, a, a good variety of American Protestant church traditions, and then even beyond Protestantism, actually. Um, so I think I'll start with Michael. Um, and first question is, if you can characterize briefly um, how music has been integrated into the church, uh, into church meetings in the traditions that you're most familiar with. Sure, and I'm familiar actually with quite a few of them, but I, I grew up in a fairly progressive Southern Baptist church that used mostly praise choruses, and I, I call that fairly progressive because there was a worship band, and uh, it, it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just a piano, and we sang contemporary music. Um, one thing I notice about that sort of service is the music portion of the service tends to be exclusively referred to as worship. So we're going to worship for a while, then we're going to read the Bible, and then mm-hmm. we're going to pray. Um, <laughs> when I was in college, I attended Eastern Orthodox services for about a year, and uh, you, you know, it's a long way off from the praise bands. The music was mostly chanting, and it was integrated so much into the service that really very little of the of the service wasn't sung in some way or another. And they, by the way, I know that Eastern Orthodox folks don't like you to call it a service. Um, as far as I know, they don't. Also, they also don't call it a mass. So I'm not sure what to call it. <laughs> When I, lived, when I lived in Omaha during grad school, I actually attended a whole bunch of different churches. I, I went to just about everything. I saw a mega church with a huge electric light show and a professional level rock band. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a few minutes. I went to a Catholic church, and that has the sort of thing that Catholic churches have, you know, similar to the, to the Orthodox Church. I went to a United Church of Christ church that had just a piano. I went to, and this is probably my favorite, uh, an African-American Seventh-day Adventist church where even the sermon was sung on some level. And I I must say that out of all the churches I've ever visited, that Seventh-day Adventist church had the nicest, most friendly congregation I've ever met. They may have been uh, mostly amused that a couple of... uh, white kids were there. We were the only white people in the uh, congregation, but they were very friendly, and I really enjoyed that service. I've never actually visited a church that had no music, but I've, I've always wanted to. And currently, the last two churches we've been members of have been Presbyterian churches that have just an organ or a piano and a choir. Okay. Um, let's see. What about you, Nathan? Well, first of all, I need to clarify, I am from the Christian Churches, Churches of Christ tradition. Uh, in our pre-show email exchange, you know, Michael asked, you know, well, does your church even have music? Uh, and that is a fairly common, I guess, categorical error. Uh, within our tradition, of course, <laughs> uh, one of them being the Disciples of Christ, which is, tends to be a fairly liberal mainline denomination. Uh, then there are the independent Christian churches, of which I'm a part. Then there are the, they don't call themselves this, but the a cappella churches of Christ. And those are the folks, they do sing during their services, uh, but because there are no musical instruments mentioned in the New Testament, uh, they forbid the use of instruments during their Sunday morning services. Uh, now, I am a part of the branch that does, in fact, use musical instruments. Uh, when I was converted as a teenager, the congregation of which I was a part 
was an organ and piano, uh, fairly traditional music sort of service. Uh, I then attended a historically African-American Christian churches congregation uh, where we just had a piano. And then uh, here recently, while I've been in Georgia, uh, again, I've, I've attended Christian churches congregations that have tended to have the small worship ensemble. Uh, right now, we've got a very talented uh, musician leading our worship, so he actually plays not only guitar, but also piano, also flute, uh, also <clears throat> violin. Uh, he's got a PhD in composition from UGA, so it's actually a sort of nice variety of instrumental work that gets done in our Sunday Sunday morning service. That said, uh, the lyrical content of the songs isn't exactly up my alley. Uh, <laughs> that is taken and arranged, usually better than the original recording, off of cr contemporary Christian music radio. And I'm sure our listeners are going to have plenty of opportunities for us to rant about the lyrical content of... Uh praise courses <laughs> yeah that that's that's for a later question though um for myself uh, i guess i do need to uh dive in here I grew up in a um till i was about 14 in a southern baptist church that had a piano a ginormous pipe organ um a choir and uh they also had a bell choir so you know the whole handbell thing um most of the service was hymns, which were sung out of hymnals with all of the, uh, the the notes for the four parts there. So I learned how to sing a bass line standing next to my dad because that's that's what he sang. Um, from there, went to a non-denominational uh, Bible church that was about half hymns, half choruses up on a screen, um, still piano, and then... Not a pipe organ, but a, uh, a, 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 well, a keyboard that's set on the pipe organ <laughs> <laughs> mode, um, a choir, um, and, and basically the same kind of, uh, you know, hi, you know, hymns, hymns sung, uh, in harmony, except when you're singing choruses, which presumably everyone sings melody, but my dad and I always tried to pick out a bass line. Um, my grandmother was uh, a cappella church of Christ Nathan. Mm -hmm. So uh, many times while I was growing up, I would visit her church and uh, always actually uh, always appreciated the, the sophisticated part singing of, yeah. of the, the church that, that she went to. I, I always enjoyed that very much. To, to butt in, do those um, a cappella church of Christ churches, do they do the uh, sacred harp singing? Uh, shape notes, you mean? Yeah. Uh, the one that she went to uh, later later on in my childhood did they did have they did have shape notes in their hymnal. Um, and if earlier, our listeners are not to, familiar not. with sacred harp singing, the shape note singing, I will put a link to a YouTube video. It is really some of the most amazing stuff you'll ever hear. It's enough to it's certainly enough to make you want to convert to uh, a cappella Church of Christ if that's what they do. <laughs> Yeah, it, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, also, more recently, going to a Presbyterian church with uh, a praise ensemble, like Nathan said, uh, which uh, 
my favorite is that they have uh, a cello and occasionally will have also a, a banjo and a mandolin. Um, I've tried to, to describe the genre of it, and the closest I can get is Appalachian Coffee House. Um, it's, it's actually quite fun stuff. Uh, also, my in-laws go to uh, Eagles Landing Baptist Church in uh, McDonough, Georgia, which is where uh, Casting Crowns is basically the, wor- the worship band. So that, that's, that's kind of the experience I've had so far. I can only imagine what that's like. Oh, <laughs> that's a different, that's a different band, Michael. That's not oh, that. is it? Yeah. yeah oh, that's, I'm so out uh, of the loop. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I can't remember who it is. I, I, I don't remember these courses. I just know it's someone else. Um, do we have any experience? I mean, you, you mentioned the, the Greek Orthodox, uh, tradition, Michael. I mean, do we have any other experience with, uh, church music in, some other non-Protestant or perhaps non-American cultures? Like I said, I, I visited Greek... I, I was a catechumen in the... In the uh, Amer- what do they call the uh, Orthodox Church in America, I think, for, mm-hmm. for a little while. Um, so I'm fairly familiar with that. I visited that Catholic Church once. I've been to a lot of high Protestant churches, Episcopal. I've been to high church Lutheran services. And then as far as non-american i th- i went to i went to again an african um they're not, not african-american a black church in jamaica but that was very much like black churches in america okay um i attended a couple services of an evangelical spanish language congregation and what, what struck me as odd and this is entirely unscientific non-expert impression on my part uh, but knowing a bit of Spanish myself and knowing some Spanish songs, the music sounded, or it felt, I'll put it that way, it felt very translated. Uh, it's almost as if they thought about the content of the songs in English and then tried to figure out what Spanish words to put to it. It didn't have the feel of a Mexican ballad or a Spanish ballad or anything like that. Uh, probably entirely my own hang-ups, but... That's the impression I got. How about you, David? Maybe they need their own Cadman. Um, the uh, the Baptist church that I that I mentioned growing up in, the one with the gigant, ginormous pipe organ, also had a deaf congregation that met across the street that was kind of an adjunct of the church. And they actually had a choir, um, which which was very interesting. Um, if you went if you went to their church, music would be played over the loudspeakers. And they had a choir director who basically kept the tempo while um, the deaf choir in robes signed in tempo with the music that the, that the, the choir director set. Huh. So, yeah, it, it, it was a, a very interesting um, – oh, I, I don't even know, know what to call it. Sort of a mixed medium, <laughs> I guess. Um, it, it, it was very interesting, and I think they did that because e- even though it was a church um, that that was targeted to meet the needs of of uh, of deaf people, um, not all of the the family members of these people who attended church with them were themselves hearing impaired. So. Also, there's something powerful about doing something in unison like that, right? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons we use music in churches is because it's something we can all do simultaneously. Right. So, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming signing simultaneously would have a similar effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, to someone who doesn't know American Sign Language, it looks an awful lot like people doing Tai Chi. Um, but, you know, that, that, that was just kind of me. I was like, that's neat. Way to make fun of deaf people, David. Um, I'm not uh, making fun of anybody when I compare it to doing Tai Chi. That's cool. <laughs> I thought I was going to be most offensive with my comment about Spanish hymnody, so thank you, David. Yeah, well, sorry. Uh, that was not meant, meant to be offensive. <laughs> anyway, um, let's get off of that topic as quickly as possible. Um, I'm familiar with the book of Psalms from the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures, Nathan, and uh, as I'm, I'm sure most, uh, as our, I'm sure our listeners are, and I know that they were written to be sung in worship, but my only experience of them is as written texts and as read texts. Um, I mean, can you help me bridge the gap between the the Psalms as they are written as we see them today, and the way the experience of worship would have been in Hebrew in in uh, the experience of music in Hebrew worship. Well, one thing that I'll I'll make a slight correction on is that the Psalms, as they come to us in their written form, uh, probably do come mainly from the rabbinic era where they would have been synagogue texts, and the, okay. the only the only reason for that is that we don't have any very very old texts of the Psalms, uh, so so what we have is necessarily coming to us in rabbinic scroll form. Now, that said, uh, there are certain markings that are almost lost to us in history. Uh, I say almost, and I'll qualify that here in a second, Uh, but there are certain words that generally get transliterated as almost superscripts to the Psalms, and in some translations of the Bible, those will constitute verse 1. In some of them, verse 1 will be the first uh, parallel pair of parallel lines there we go uh mm-hmm. but these words you know the reason that translators transliterate them is because those forms uh as i said i mean just haven't survived history so we can speculate uh that certain of the psalms would have been coronation songs uh certain would have been accompaniments to sins sin offerings uh certain ones would have been accompaniments to grain offering so on and so forth uh, but really what we have as far as the Psalter, the 150 or 151 uh, that we have now uh, are really rabbinic synagogue texts. Now, the reason I said almost lost to history is that there are still surviving a few hundred Samaritans. And there has been some interesting anthropological work done on the Samaritans. There are a very few audio recordings of synagogue, not synagogue, pardon me, of Samaritan worship and the forms that Samaritan worship takes in the era of electronic recording sounds a lot like a sort of Arabic chant. Uh, So again, you know, has that evolved over the course of the 2000 years since Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman at the well? Certainly it would have had to, Mm -hmm. but you can get your hands on those recordings. I mean, it really is just a fascinating thing to listen to. Uh, because you get something that, even if it's not you know authentic Samaritan worship from the year you know 30 A.D., uh, still it's very very alien to what we think of as religious music 
really from synagogue or from church traditions. That's really interesting. And and shifting it up to I guess 30 AD and beyond, um uh you know that we we do know from uh from the gospels that that Jesus, you know, for instance after uh you know, after that meal in the upper room, it says that they sang a they sang a psalm. Um you know, so in we do we do see see Christ, uh, you know himself practicing this this use of this use of music in in Hebrew worship, but that morphed into something else um, as as the church kind of becomes its own distinct thing. Um, Michael, uh, what role uh, do we see music playing in early Christian worship as it's laid out in uh, I guess the New Testament and then afterwards? Well, um, the New Testament says more on this subject than some people think it does, and it says a lot less than other people think it does. So I'll go through a kind of brief survey of what it says. Um, James says that you should sing psalms if you're feeling cheerful, and you should pray if you're feeling depressed. Uh, Paul and Silas sing when they're in jail in in Acts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5.19, Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I, you know, obviously, that's metaphorical, but I kind of like the literal version. Uh, uh, this this kind of image of constant musicality. It's like the Christian life should be some sort of opera. Uh, <laughs> one interesting verse is First Corinthians fourteen fifteen. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. And and verses like that make me think that music in the New Testament church is directed to the mind as much as or more than it's directed to the emotions. And I'll confess that my views on the topic have been heavily influenced by a class I took at Tocqueville Falls College um, and the book that the professor assigned, which happened to be the book he wrote. (laughs) Um, It's called uh, Worship the Way It Was Meant to Be by Robert Wetmore. It is, as far as I can remember, heavily Calvinist. Um, He really goes with... uh, this passage from later in Ephesians 5 that says, teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the thesis of this book, and I think it's largely correct, is that songs are meant to be a teaching aid. Now, that attitude is not going to win you any friends in most evangelical churches, but Calvinists like Dr. Wetmore um, will like you if you espouse it. So uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about doctrine in uh, church music a little later, but for now, Nathan, do you have anything to add to that? Uh... I, I was hoping you were going to bring up that passage from Ephesians because, you know, I, I think that that is a definite sign that at least Paul imagined song in the early church uh, to be a pedagogical moment. Uh, it's something by which and through which uh, the church would, those who have come in uh, to worship properly. Uh, in other words, you know, one learns the nature of God and the content of the gospel, not only through oratory proclamation, uh, what we would call a sermon or a homily now, but also through uh, presumably the content of these songs. And what's interesting, Michael, is that the psalm obviously is a very Semitic form. Uh, The hymn, though, uh, from the very little word study I've done on that, you know, does appear as a musical genre all over the Greco-Roman world. So in other words, Mm -hmm. this adaptation of forms that would have been native to Zeus cults and perhaps Osiris cults and perhaps Adonis cults, uh, but taking those forms 
and adapting Christian content to it, which I find just utterly fascinating. This sort of thing is going on as early as St. Paul. Although if you look at those, the old Greco-Roman hymns, and I'm not familiar with the Roman ones, I'm just familiar with the Greek ones. If you look at the Homeric hymns or the hymns of uh, Callimachus, I think you pronounce his name, Callimachus, I don't know, I, I never can do Greek names. If you look at those, they don't look much like the hymns we know. They're, they're almost like miniature epic poems. Oh, they really are, yeah. And I mean, you can easily, or I can easily imagine, you know, a sort of, you know, the, the ballad of Jesus being sung in those early gatherings. Sure, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good comparison. Those old Greco-Roman hymns are much closer to what we would think of as ballads than what we would think of as hymns. Okay. You couldn't leave out the third verse, that's for sure. So, so <laughs> when the passage says hymn, it's not just saying generic songs that have religious content, but it's actually referring to a specific, uh, yeah, a specific it, and familiar genre. Like, yeah, it, it definitely has literary antecedents, absolutely. Okay. Something sure. more literary than musical, I suspect. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, you know, Although as, the as, line there is is fine in the ancient world. Right. Absolutely. Well, uh, you guys have already pointed out that that the hymnody that they were, you know, that what they were calling a hymn is 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 distinct from uh, what we would today call a hymn. Um, I, I, there's no way that we can do. Uh, do justice to the history of the hymnody that we have today. Um, I know that as a child, I kind of took the hymnals that were tucked into the pew, back of the pew in front of me, uh, sort of for granted. And it's uh, it was only in later years that I realized just how many traditions were being kind of channeled into this one hardbound volume. Um, but if you look at the history of Western hymnody, uh, I've noticed that the the circumstances in which kind of new hymn traditions grow, they tend to be uh, newly converted cultures or theological controversies or religious revivals. Um, just real quickly, uh, do you guys have any historical moments that you'd like to draw our listeners' attention to in relation to a particular hymn or a hymn tradition? Um I guess Nathan. Yeah, I've been anxious about this the last couple of days because I'm I'm afraid I'm going to steal farmers. But farmer, I apologize in advance if I do. I have two, so if you steal one, I've got the other one still. Nice. How prepared you are, Michael. Anyway, uh, one moment that I find especially fascinating is when Martin Luther starts recatechizing Central Europe, and that's really how I imagine the Reformation happening. It's a new teaching. Uh, it is refamiliarizing people with something with which they should have been familiar. And one of the devices that he definitely used was the musical service. Uh, he definitely wanted people singing together, and he wanted people singing about those themes that he found most central to this old new understanding of the gospel. And, and of course, uh, the most famous hymn that comes down to us still appears in our own services is A Mighty Fortress is Our God, one mm -hmm. exception, unfortunately, that has arisen is that Martin Luther adapted that from some sort of drinking song. Uh, real quick, just to dispel that real quickly, he did, in fact, write that he took words and set them to bar forms. Uh, however, anyone who's done any sort of instrumental music knows that there is a bar at the end of a phrase if you repeat it. Uh, what Martin Luther was doing was he was taking the same tune repeating the same tune multiple times but with different doctrinal content in each one. So you think of a mighty fortress, 
you sing the same tune over and over, uh, but in each go-round, uh, the content changes a bit. Uh, so, I mean, there were later Christian hymn, hymnodis, hymnodis, hymn writers. There were <laughs> more, popular turn, more, more popular tunes and perhaps even tunes of ill repute. Uh, I think Charles Wesley might have done that. Uh, but Luther himself was mainly interested in repeating a tune, changing up the doctrinal content so that you could stuff as much content into the singing as humanly possible. Um, Michael, I mean, what moment, if I've stolen one of yours, what's your other one or what's your favorite of your two if you have, if I haven't? Uh, you, you didn't, uh, you didn't steal from me. I have a couple and they're, they're American movements and, and one is less a movement than a person. Um, I want to talk for a minute about Fanny Crosby, who was a blind woman in the late 19th century who wrote every hymn you've ever loved. She wrote Blessed Assurance. She wrote mm-hmm. To God Be the Glory, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior, Jesus is Tenderly Calling You Home. Really, 8,000, more than 8,000 hymns this woman wrote on her own. Uh, she's not part of any revival I know of, but personally, she could fill 16 hymnals, and, and she's really, really important. And, and what you'll notice about those hymns, as opposed to Luther's, is there's doctrinal content in them, and I don't want to make it sound like there's not, but those are much more emotional, emotion-based hymns than someone like Luther's or even Charles Wesley's. So you can, you can kind of point to her as, as one of the turning points. I also wanted to talk about, when we're talking about revivals, and I'm going to get into them in a, little, in a little while later when we talk about praise courses, but I want to talk about the Jesus movement for a moment. That was the last uh, major revival in in modern america it happened in the late 60s early 70s when all these mm-hmm. hippies out in california started coming to <laughs> calvary chapel which i think costa mesa uh Ca- calvary chapel uh and and becoming christians and from this you get christian rock and, and you get the the praise chorus which is just uh if, if not a direct parody of secular music it is it is the forms of secular music with some degree of religious content, um, not as much as not as much as Martin Luther most of the time. Uh, most of the time, probably not even as much doctrinal content as Fanny Crosby, but uh, cer- certainly that's an important moment in the history of sacred music. Mm. David, what do you have in mind? Um, well, one uh, is the, the the story that I'm obligated to tell by virtue of being. Uh, someone who studies Old English, is simply the story of, of the poet Cadman in uh, Bede's Ecclesiastical History, who uh, is a, a simple cowherd and uh, is, uh, is asked during a social gathering to, uh, to sing a song, uh, which he, is, he, he feels too, too bashful and uh, incapable to do this, so he goes and hides and falls asleep and has a dream in which a man tells him uh, that he must sing and that he must sing a song about creation. And that song, which has been, uh, which is now, you know, you'll find it in Norton's anthologies and things like that called Cadman's Hymn, is uh, the first recorded Old English poetry on, uh, on a sacred subject. Not that it's the oldest that was ever written, but it's what Bede chooses to show us as as the first. And uh, and you can that, be smarter than your friends by referring to the 
coffeehouse rock band as Cadman's Call rather than Cademan's Call. Well, it's it's not an A and an E. It's one letter. It's called an Ash, and you say it like Ah. Um. Anyway, uh, that that's interesting to me because it, it's it's a it's a short little poem written in alliterative verse. It doesn't mimic the the style of Latin verse. It doesn't mimic the Psalms, though. Its its doctrinal content is uh, pretty much yanked from you know the first chapter of Genesis um, it's a very anglo-saxon poem and so uh, th- that that I think is is interesting a point in which a converted culture begins to worship in its own idiom I, I, I think is is critical um, one last that I wanted to point out is an old Christmas Carol uh, entitled of the Father's love begotten it's, uh, I believe, the oldest hymn in uh, the hymn book that I grew up with that was not adapted from a psalm. It's uh, written by a gentleman by the name of Aurelius Prudentius, <laughs> who uh, lived... Uh, Gee, what empire is he from? Yeah, he, he was, uh, according to the, to the dates in the hymnal, uh, he lived uh, from about 348 until sometime in the early 400s. But if you read it, the the first verse uh, translated, Of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending He, of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see, evermore and evermore. And... And then it goes on to talk about how Christ is the one who made the world, and the details of of the incarnation, and... uh, and then the last verse is uh, basically a recitation of the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is the generation after the Council of Nicaea. Right? So we have this, this ancient hymn that's basically encoding, encoding Nicaea in, in, in worship. Um, Christ is God. Christ made the world. Christ, uh, the, the, even the eternal begetting of of the son from the father is in the very first line um i i i I find that incredibly interesting which leads us to uh our next question which is uh doctrinal content and church music um that's a pet peeve of mine um i've never been as much concerned with style as i have been with uh what are the words that we're singing and uh, this is often the linchpin of debates of hymns versus choruses. But uh, on the other hand, I've been to churches that uh, take respected old hymns and actually alter the words in order to make them more doctrinally specific in a way that suits that church's tradition. And that really irritates me. So um, I guess I'm going to turn this to Nathan first. Uh, my, my question is, what role, what role does the does music bear to catechesis in the church, and how much doctrinal content um, needs to be there? I guess. Well, one of the things about music is you know as we discussed, I don't remember what episode it was. Uh, actually, Michael, I think it might have been our Heidegger episode. But uh, music, because it is the most ephemeral of art forms. 
In other words, it doesn't leave behind a chunk of marble in the shape of David uh, mm -hmm. or image of David on a canvas. Uh, music is performed and then it is gone. Actually, I think it might have been our fan and fandom episode. Anyway, um, it was because it is the most ephemeral of art forms. Uh, philosophers have long noted that it is also the most individualizing and the most communitarian of forms all at the same time. Uh, so in other words, all of the people who are in a place experiencing a piece of music are in some sense sharing that experience in a way that people looking at a sculpture 10 years apart from each other don't. It's also true that when one closes one's eyes, one is still in the music, so to speak. Uh, whereas the visual arts, obviously that's not the case. So, you know, the point to all this is that it also stands to be one of the great teachers for good or for ill. And for that reason, you know, I think that, you know, what David's talking about, I, I haven't actually experienced this phenomenon, but I'll take his word for it. Uh, <laughs> I can give examples later. <laughs> the words of hymns in order to fit a particular denominational or even a particular theological, even more particularly than denominational theological perspective, uh, it is definitely a powerful move. Uh, you know, I, honestly, I haven't given it much thought to decide whether it offends me or not. Now, you I must will... have seen it in miniature, Nathan, which was when they changed so many hymnals to gender-inclusive language. And see, in my tradition, they haven't. Oh, yeah, in our, in our, there's a big split in the Presbyterian Church over the red hymnal, which is gender-exclusive, and the blue hymnal, which uh, changes good Christian men rejoice to good Christians now rejoice. Oh, oh, and so oh. well, my straight straight forces. So we we bypassed that puppy, uh, but you know, I I think that you know for that reason, like I said, you know, the instrumentation surrounding a piece, I think, does have something to do with it. I mean, the reason is that when we're talking about a rock and roll band, a lot of times, you know. Let me put it this way. I mean, there are no video games called Cello Hero yet. Um, you know, when <laughs> a rock and roll band, we're talking about something where the individual virtuosity of the instrumentalists can threaten to overwhelm something. I mean, you think about a band like Led Zeppelin, you're thinking about Jimmy Page just as much as Robert Plant, okay? So that, you know, when a show becomes more of a performance than a communal singing... I think that you can actually lose some of the common effects of this. Now, to get back to David's question, David, I'm sorry I wandered so far there. It's all right. <laughs> you know, I think that music, whether we want it to or not, becomes one of the prime teachers in the church. And that's why, frankly, I think that we need to spend a good deal of time, a good deal of effort, and a good deal of mental acuity uh, on the content of our lyrics. Now, now that I've wandered all around the place, you know, Michael... Tell us some more about these strange hymnals. Oh, I mean, I don't know beyond the gender inclusivity thing. I'm not sure exactly what David's referring to, but I'm, it's all, in the uh, PCUSA, the uh, the red hymnal versus blue hymnal debate rages on. Or our last church used the blue hymnal. Our current church used the red hymnal. Uh, 
I, I'm sure there's going to be a new one soon. Purple. Green. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm sure somebody <laughs> will have some reason to be upset. I don't care about gender-inclusive language in hymns. If they want to change good Christian men rejoice to good Christian folks rejoice or whatever, I don't care. I don't like it when it uh, messes with the poetry of the of the lyric, but most of the time I don't think it does. Whatever. Uh, the idea, the one, the examples that I have um, tend to be, uh, well, uh, honestly, there it, it's it's maybe this is something unique to uh, unique to the PCA. Um, it's particularly something that gets inflicted upon poor Charles Wesley, who, <laughs> being a Wesleyan, um, is insufficiently specific about things like uh, like election. Uh, the one in particular that I want to cite is the uh, the hymn "And Can It Be," which uh, in its uh, I believe the second verse uh, talks about uh, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. And uh, the hymnal which the church I go to uses. It's, uh, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite is grace. Um, emptied himself, how great his love, and bled for all his chosen race. Mm-hmm. With, yes, which is a substantive difference from Charles Wesley. As a Calvinist, I have no problems with what Wesley wrote. Um... And, but apparently, someone felt that it was insufficiently specific. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think it's generally inaccurate. But someone felt it was insufficiently specific. Um, and anyway, to to me, that's that's mistreating Charles Wesley. Yeah. Anyway, that's kind of a pet peeve. Yeah, but Charles Wesley mistreats the Bible, David. Um. <laughs> oh okay. man. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm just kidding, folks. The Presbyterians and the Methodists don't tend to get along, but uh, I don't have any, any any problems with the with the Wesleyans. Well, for the record, this Presbyter this PCA Presbyterian is backing up Charles Wesley on this one. I'm I'm with you too. When I'm we sing, I was just being the voice of the ugly yeah. Calvinist. Okay, when I when we sing this hymn in church, I sing the right words and I sing them loud. Oh, good in, lord. In the baseline. Why? Because I stick it to the man. That's what I do. Yeah, Gr- uh, Grubsy's a real revel here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um. What about the what? What, what about choruses? Um. You know, you you mentioned something earlier, Michael, about uh, about choruses and their uh, of uh, well, maybe insufficient doctrinal content. You want to pursue that any? Sh- sure. I, I mean, I. It's been so long since I was I was regularly exposed to choruses that I can't come up with a whole bunch of examples except the one I used in the uh, the the intro to the show this week. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. Which feels like it goes on interminably. I I, I think there there is often a lack of doctrinal content in in praise choruses. I don't think that's across the board. Um, I I don't know if it has to do with the fact that it's rock music and rock music often does not have intellectual content, although not not always. And of course, I listen primarily to rock music, so I'm certainly not down on it. But 
I, nor do I want to suggest, by the way, that hymns across the board have doctrinal content. And I'll give you an example. The song, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, which everybody loves, um, is so <laughs> empty of actual Christian content that when they changed it to the Manwich song, Manwich, Manwich, We Adore Thee, it, <laughs> it did not take away much of the theological content. Manwich, Manwich, We Make tonight a Madwich night. <laughs> we, in my family, we can't sing that song at church anymore without laughing because of the Manwich commercial. Anyway, it's not just a problem. My, my point is, it's not just a problem with the praise chorus. It's a problem mm. with certain hymns as well. But I do think praise choruses as a group tend to be more shallow than hymns as a group. Well, the one that I recall, you talk about, yes, yes, Lord, yes, yes, and all the, yes, all the rest Lord, of that going yes, on interminably. Lord, yes, yes, Lord. There was a, there was a, a chorus that we would sing in Bible college. Uh, I, I don't know if this was the title, but the chorus was, I could sing of your love forever. I could sing of your love forever. It's a delirious and, song. And we did. <laughs> Oh, we did, we did. Uh, we would that same line would be sung for it felt like ten solid minutes, and we would sing it normally, and then the music, the instruments would kind of go down, and we would sing it in acapella for a little while, a little and then the mu- now, and then the instrument, the instruments would crank back up again, and we'd sing it loud, and yeah. You know the forever. worst to me, and I hate to make this show into let's just complain about praise choruses but the worst the one I, I just won't sing is that amazing love song because it has that line in all i do i honor you and every time i'm in a church that sings that my parents church sings it and i've been to you know christian college chapels that sing it um when, when i've uh, whenever i'm in a crowd that sings that i always start looking for the lightning because it's just blatantly not true i would love to meet the person for uh, who can sing that line in all i do i honor you uh and and have it be true, but I have not met that person yet. In its defense, Michael, it does have antecedents in the Psalms. In other words, you know, there are lines in the Psalms that are aspirational rather than historical. All right. I'll grant that one. <laughs> what about In the Secret? That one doesn't have any content. Wait, which, which one are you talking about? In, uh, I Want to Know You. I forgot it's not called In the Secret, which is what we called it in my youth group. Uh, it's a I... Sonic Flood song, I believe, I Want to Know You. Oh, I found a, uh, I, I, I found one. Um, let's see, where, where is it? I gotta pull it up. Uh, once in the dark of night, uh, inflamed with love and wanting, I arose and went as no one knows when all my house, uh, lay long in deep repose. And, uh, is this an Edgar Allan Poe poem? No. Oh, guiding dark of night. Oh, dark of night. More darling than the dawn. Oh, night that can unite a lover and loved one. A lover and loved one moved in unison. Apparently, uh, Jesus is my boyfriend didn't begin with praise choruses, huh? No, that's uh, St. John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. I'm familiar with the translation. <laughs> Do what? I, I, I'm familiar with a different translation of it, but... I was thinking that sounds kind of like St. John of the Cross. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's St. John of the Cross, Cross's Dark Night of the Soul. Now, that my whole... point, my point is not that we shouldn't listen to any music Christian or otherwise that whose primary purpose is to move us emotionally. My mm-hmm. point is we shouldn't use that in, in corporate worship. 
or we should keep our use to that to a minimum and accentuate actual doctrinal content. So my point is not that St. John of the Cross is bad. My point is St. John of the Cross probably shouldn't be used very often in worship services. Uh, make a case for that because I'm interested in that assertion. Well, I mean, it, it goes back to that uh, that passage from Ephesians where, where it... Uh, let me pull it back up here because I've, I have not memorized it. I, I, well, this is from 1 Corinthians. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. And Ephesians, teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It, se it seems like the primary purpose of music in church services is, is meant to be uh, intellectual edification. That is, I guess, uh, with, with the, the emotional content of the music being the sugar that helps the medicine go down? If there is emotional content to the music, yes. Okay. I, I mean, I'm Calvinist enough to be rather suspicious of emotion. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's let make a non-Calvinist case against it, Michael, because I, th I think your case is certainly valid. I mean, the one that I would make is that psychologically and existentially, uh, in order to get a room full of people emoting, uh, it's necessarily going to alienate those who are not in that emotional moment. You know, Heidegger's idea of atmospherics, you know, the one person who is not in the atmosphere, so to speak, is necessarily going to feel entirely alone in the universe. Whereas, I think that the songs with doctrinal content and those that are primarily pedagogical in character, uh, because the focus is not on the individualized emotional state, but it is on the objective content of Christian doctrine. You know, it's something that is, I, I guess the case I would make is it is more likely to lead one into a certain state of being rather than to celebrate a state of being that might or might not actually be there. Fair enough. And this is something the high churches do better than the low churches, I think. Kathleen yeah. Norris talks about this in her book, The Cloister Walk, where she joins a uh, Benedictine abbey for a year. And she says the, the whole point, they go through the psalms, and, you know, there's happy psalms and sad psalms and ang angry psalms. And the point when you're going through the psalms is not to feel what the psalmist is saying. The point is to recognize that there are Christians in the world at that moment who are feeling that. And in... Right affirming the doctrine of those psalms that are nevertheless have emotional content you are uh, you are joining with them so it becomes much less individual well, even, even even when there is emotional content right the sheer number of lament psalms i think is a good corrective to the happy clappy character of a lot of music frankly since fanny crosby i mean you know <laughs> let me make my case here i mean i think that her very emotive songs really do assume a prior emotional state that may or may not be there for any given person. Sure. I, I can grant that. I, I mean, Franny Crosby wrote some really great songs. I don't want to put her down. That's true. That's but true. She, and, she, you know, and she was blind, so... So we know. can't criticize her? Yes. <laughs> I see. <laughs> you didn't feel that way about the deaf earlier, David. I, I wasn't criticizing. Not criticizing. Anyway... Um, well, uh, anyway, the, I, I guess what I was hearing in this is uh, an echo of my own suspicion of songs in which I'm singing about how I feel an emotion that I do not, in fact, feel at that moment, which makes me, you know, just kind of sit there feeling hypocritical. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Sorry. 
Yeah, I, I would much rather sing a song that's um, that's speaking of who who God is and what and and what God has done than songs about how good I feel about that at that moment because the ones the ones about God are going to always be true. That's true. Right. Yeah. Now, just to use that song, you know, I could sing of your love forever. Uh, you know, what a professor of mine said back in the mid-90s when that song was first ascendant uh, was, why don't you just go ahead instead of talking about how you're going to do it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's like, you know, why don't we sing about the exodus and about the exile and about all of these things that are at the actual content of divine love rather than singing about our own willingness to sing of it forever. One quick story about that song. i got to get this in. Uh, a good friend of mine, Nathan Flora, he was the campus minister at Milligan College uh, after I graduated there, but while we were both in seminary. And uh, there was a praise band that would sing that song and was in the habit that David so skillfully narrated. Um, <laughs> and there was one time that on the set list for a chapel service, uh, one of the, I think the third song down the list was and I quote, I could sing of your love for a reasonable span of time. <laughs> I don't know if that's the point, but it was a great story. <laughs> that's, that's, that's awesome. I, I guess we, we do need to shift because um, we have been, we have, you, you brought this up earlier, Nathan, when you were talking about um, how music can, can, effectively deliver doctrine um sure. but you know as long as as long as i can remember the style of, of worship the style of the music in the worship has been a hot topic um mm -hmm. and you know i've known churches who split about it and i know churches who you know who surfaces who, who have de facto split over it you know they now have separate services that that you know cater to the tastes of you know, half the congregation or whatever. Because um, going to church is, after all, about catering to your tastes. Well, yeah, we'll let that we'll let that comment stand just as it is, because um, I have nothing nothing to add to it. Um, Michael, uh, what are the? How is this debate conventionally staged? And it, and is is this really just a matter of taste? You know, or is there something more going on here? All right, so once again, I'll, I'll point to that Jesus movement and say that's where contemporary worship really begins. It begins in the charismatic churches associated with the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s. So um, one thing that's interesting is the contemporary worship service often replaces not just hymns, but also creeds and formal prayers, right? Because if hymns are old and stodgy, those formal prayers are even worse because you don't mean it, man. Uh, there's a there's a few arguments on either side of the uh, contemporary worship divide. Proponents of contemporary worship will claim that the music is more relatable for the younger generation. Um, so you sing a new song, as the Psalms tell you to. Uh, people can <laughs> people can understand what the lyrics are saying, and you know, in some of the older hymns, it's hard to understand what the lyrics mean, and I th that, that seems valid. Uh, the the contemporary worship raises your emotion and invites the spirit in, which is a very charismatic argument that I don't really understand because I'm a Calvinist. Um, they'll they'll argue quite rightly that hymns aren't from the Bible anyway, that hymns mostly come from the 18th and 19th century and thus are not, you know, they're not sacred writ. 
On the other side of the divide, the people who are for traditional worship, they'll say that praise choruses, as we have just discussed, are often theologically shallow, um, that they promote style over substance. Uh, they'll say that the services, the contemporary services, are built more on entertainment than on worship. And, and they'll say that the rock band services put the spotlight on the musician instead of putting it on God. Now, I think both sides of this argument have some decent points, and I, I tend to come down with the traditionalist, but at the same time I understand where the contemporary folks are saying, I have trouble with contemporary services because I was in a rock band, and I get distracted by rock services. I, I start thinking about how I would play the solo differently, or how I would change the arrangements, or what, what have you, and I just don't have that problem with uh, traditional services. Some people might. I'd also like to add a new objection to contemporary worship services, which is that the music doesn't really sound like popular music at all. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a very distinctive style. The singing style is, is distinctive. The musical genre is distinctive. Even the guitar sound, if you know what you're looking for, is very distinctive to quote-unquote worship music. I find it rather annoying. I, I don't think it... I don't think it uh, I don't think it attracts people who aren't already into that style of music, which is mostly relegated to, uh, to, to contemporary worship music. Well, I have noticed that in cycling, kind of cycling through the radio, the only radio station that sounds like that will be your 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 Christian contemporary station. Which is funny, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks when we do Christian rock, but um, the. Uh, the complaint about Christian music used to be that it was just a ripoff of secular music, and now my complaint is that it it sounds too sterile to even sound like secular music. I I, I don't know. Mm. Uh, the only the only person you're likely to hear I'm ripping off in a contemporary worship service is you too. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that song "Open the Eyes of My Heart," Lord, is if you go go back and play it at the same time as a. Uh, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. They're the, they're the same song. Well, yeah, I mean, the same goes for uh, I Want to Know You More and Semi-Charmed Life. N no. No, I, I, you, you must be thinking of uh, one of those songs is very slow and one of them is very fast. Unless I'm not think, I'm not. What is I Want to Know You More? I don't know that. Maybe I don't know the song you're talking about. Want to hear your voice, that one. No, that one's a slow song and Semi-Charmed Kind of Life is a fast song. Not the version that I've heard on CCM radio. All right. Well, you know, I don't listen to worship music, so. <laughs> Whatever version is playing on the radio when I'm over at my friend's house, uh, the guitar work is almost identical to, what is that band, Blink-182? No, that's uh, Third, Third Eye Blind. Blind, that's what it is. But the guitar work, I mean, if they didn't actually just rip it out of that track and plant it in the new one, <laughs> one has learned to play identically to... Third Eye Blind. Interesting. Mm. Now, I, I grew up in in a tradition. Not This did not have to do with the church I went to, but rather with uh, the particular homeschool subculture that I was part of that actively thought that anything with the trappings of rock was not merely counterproductive to worship, but was actively satanic. Well, the, the beat does come from Africa. Well, yeah. So, voodoo. I mean... What are you going to say? That is an actual argument people used to make. They've, as far as I know, they still make it. That mm -hmm. the, the beat of rock music comes from Africa and is thus evil. Yes. And because I've as we know, nothing good ever came out of Africa. Right. Of <laughs> Israel. Civilization. 
human right. life. <laughs> Augustine of Hippo. I don't know. Um, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of put that one out there because that is that is another position. It's not a position that I hold anymore. Um, s- simply because, uh, you know, as, as as Nathan pointed out much earlier, the music that uh, is is proposed by people of, of that particular uh, you know subset of the Christian fundamentalist population. Uh, the the music that they that they put forth as their biblical alternative, in fact, bears no resemblance to the kind of music that Jesus himself would have actually sung. Absolutely. But right. more more to do with the well, what uh, what the music minister at the church I'm going to now calls uh, the circus music of the 19th century. Yep. Um, so I mean, the- I, I think we can probably all agree that to some extent this is a matter of taste. And that it's probably not worth splitting your church over what style of music gets played on Sunday morning. That the bigger, much bigger problem is is a lack of content either in the hymns or the praise choruses. Let, let me piggyback on that, Michael, and I'll say it's not worth splitting the church. It is worth sustained civil discussion. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, we haven't ex- done one in a while. Extra, extra, ex cathedra pronouncement. Um, style of style of music is worth sustained church discussion, though not splitting. Um, one thing I did want to to say that it, I guess in in the defense of something that's more traditional, um, I liked imaginatively in, in a service. I appreciate the idea that um, that it when I'm singing. Uh, an older hymn that I'm in effect singing along with uh, with past generations of Christians um, that there are you know saints who have gone on before me who could join me in the song and that one day I could sit down with Isaac Watts and sing that song along with him or whatever or Prudentius or, or Fanny Crosby or who, whomever yeah. and I, I do like that aspect of, of traditional hymnody because I do, I do think it enhances the the feeling that Christianity is not something that we just kind of made up in our generation and have to keep fresh and have to keep mulching what the past generation did in order to keep it new and relevant. So our great grandkids will want to sit down with Matt Redman in the same way, and uh, Darlene's that or however you pronounce her last name. How odd. Um, you did mention something earlier. Uh, let's see. Was it you, Michael, that talked about um, about the worship band being being a focus? Yeah. Of attention. I think said that at some point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. One, one of one of you said it. Um, I think both of us probably said it. I mean, we're used to the idea of worship leaders. Those these days, um, worship leaders seem to be more backed up by ensembles of instrumentalists and vocalists. Um, I've already mentioned my in-laws church who has a praise band um, that that is casting crowns. They do record, they tour, they're on the radio. Um, and when you go to their church, that's that's who's who's up on the stage. Um, I've appreciated the music in that particular church. Um, they they perform it well. Um, and many of the songs that they sung actually did have doctrinal content that I appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have some doubts about the model. I mean, how is this different from going to see a band play 
I mean, have we surrendered church music to professionals? Is, is, is that what we're seeing? Well, I'm going to answer this question by telling a story because I strive to be more like Jesus. Uh, Good idea. We attend a PCUSA church even though we are probably theologically PCA. And, and I, there, there's several reasons for that, but one of them does have to do with music. We, uh, when we moved to Tallahassee, we visited several PCA churches, and I will not um, give out names so as not to embarrass anybody if everybody from those churches is listening. We went to one, and not one person, we went twice or three times maybe, and not one person ever talked to us. Um, we really hated the whole service. We liked the pastor, but the service just turned us off. And what, what it was was he had... It was a huge stage with like 15 different microphones, so 15 different singers. Everybody got a song. Like the guitar player would take a song, and then the keyboard. It was like the Beatles. Um, uh, the the drums were incredibly loud. And, but the the nadir of this service was, the guitar player was playing a solo, and he put his foot up on the monitor. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, I mean, which is the biggest rock cliche there is. I mean. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so we went back the next week because they, they advertised a traditional service at, uh, at 10 a.m. And we went, and it was the exact same service, except it didn't have the solo, and it had a one terrible modern arrangement of a classic hymn. I think, and I think that church did Yes, Lord, Yes, Lord, Yes, Yes, Lord as well. Uh, mm. So all that is to say that there's an odd thing I've noticed in Protestantism, and I, I went as a sociological experiment to nearly every denomination of church when I lived in Omaha, and this is something I noticed. The more liberal your theology is as a Protestant, the more conservative your music tends to be. The, the UCC church <laughs> I visited was by far the most traditionalist music I've ever heard. And obviously this formulation would exclude like primitive Baptist and and people, people like that who really resist the march of, of progress <laughs> at all. So, I mean, like I said, my, my theology is probably closer to the PCA than it is to the PCUSA. I, for one, I mean, I hold to biblical inerrancy where the PCA, P, PCUSA doesn't. But I didn't feel like I fit in in that church because there was this serious anti-intellectual vibe from the, from the music. It was, it was very emotion-based. There was almost no content. Uh, thankfully, we found a relatively conservative PCUSA church where the theology is sound and the music isn't a distraction for us. So, I mean, am I, am I just being a bigot here? Am I enshrining my own taste? I, I probably am, yes. But there, there, there has to be a connection, I think, between the type of music and the overall atmosphere of that service and the fact that we visited three times without anyone saying so much as good morning to us. And I know that makes me look, I know that I, I look uh, mean and surly, but my wife is small and pretty, and most people would at least talk to her. So, so I, I, I don't know if I'm right in finding the connection between the uh, general rudeness of the people and the rock band service, but that's what I found. Hmm. That was a long rant, I'm sorry. I, I didn't let you guys get a word in edgewise. No, that's all right. I mean, I, I basically agree with you that, you know, like I said earlier, I mean, when the virtuosity of the instrumental soloist becomes the focus of attention, there's something that's lost. And I mean, I, I would say that even as someone who appreciates uh, what my grandma quick calls karaoke music in church on occasion. Um, yeah. If, <laughs> uh, real quick story. She, you know, she goes to church about twice a year. Uh, but she went to church when uh, my cousin-in-law, I guess, was preaching. 
And, uh, you know, my mom asked her afterwards, how'd you like it? She says, oh, it was real good. And that woman singing karaoke was pretty good, too. Are you talking about the, the phenomenon of the special music? I am indeed. But With the backing track? <laughs> ever since today, I've always thought about it as karaoke music. That, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, I, I, w- I, will say, I will say one thing. That, that, that was pretty funny, uh, Michael, talking about him, you know, you know, putting his foot up on the, uh, uh, what was he put his foot on? On the, on the, on the uh, monitor. The, the on the monitor. Okay. Um, yeah. And then he proceeded to smash his guitar against the stage. I wish. Um, I, I will say that when I was in a band, I once put my foot up on a monitor, but I was playing solo and I, I played the guitar solo as a joke. So, uh, right. I, I am aware of the, uh, the, the, the rock, uh, tropes. Yeah. I, I, I will say that, that at Eagle's Landing, the closest thing to that I've ever seen is when uh, the worship leader started off the, the music segment of the, of the service uh, with, let's get our worship on. <laughs> but, I'd be getting that's my about car it. keys on. <laughs> <laughs> that's about it. Um, was there a I, fog I, machine? No, there was, there was no, there was no fog machine. There are lots of lights, though, that that kind of go up and down and around and stuff. Anyway, um, the uh, the church that that uh, my wife and I are attending now, um, they they've also got a band up front. But I want I wanted to mention what they do. They're also PCA, Michael, um, and they but they don't follow the model of what you talked about. Um, the only time the uh, the ensemble and the worship leader are singing is if either the the congregation is singing with them uh, during during offertory, so that the congregation is still doing something, or during communion. Oh, um, there is no special music. There are no solos. Uh, and when I when I asked my uh, I asked the music uh, minister about that. Uh, recently, and he said it's because the leadership of the church doesn't want any 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 act of worship only taking place on the at, in the front of the room. That mm-hmm. that during the offering, an act of worship is going on uh, amongst the congregation. You know, while the music is playing during communion, worship is also going on amongst the congregation. Um, along with the music, but there's never a time when the congregation is simply sitting passively and watching it performed. Well, that Which, also is is good because it doesn't limit our understanding of worship to merely the music we sing. Right. right. And incidentally, I mean that's an example of what I was talking about earlier. You know, the careful and sustained discussion of what it means to do w- music within a Sunday service. Mm-hmm. That is one thing that I appreciate most about the church that I'm attending now is is that it does seem as if they they have put a good bit of thought into how to how to integrate music in such a way that it, it doesn't attract the people who just want to be seen. Um, right. I certainly, by the way, didn't mean to suggest that all or most PCA churches are like the one I just described. Oh no no no! I I I think well I mean PCA that is a uh, that is a disclaimer to any PCA schools who may have my job application in front of them as they listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean it, that 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 to say there's there is a good bit of freedom within the PCA don, denomination for each congregation to determine how it 
um, how it does its worship. Um, there are sort of broad traditions, but there is a good bit of congregational freedom in that. In, um, in the end, really, what kept us from that church was the fact that, I mean, nobody nobody spoke to us. I really want to know if you guys think that might have something to do with the atmosphere of the, the worship service, or if that church is just full of jerks. How big was it? It was big. 2,000 people? I've seen that in, I've seen that in some big churches. Um, because you'll, a lot of times you'll have... Um, You'll have people in big churches um, because they can hide, and they don't, and they don't feel like they have to do anything because there's enough people. <laughs> right. but, so if you've got a congreg, if you if if you've got a room where half the people in the room feel like it's someone else's job to greet you, um, then you could pretty easily make your way in and out of that auditorium without ever having been greeted. All right. Anyway, um, I I think we've pretty much. Uh, done what we set out to do. And this lo is looking like it's going to be a long episode. Uh, I think it's going to be our longest episode, or close to it. Um, mm, wow. Um, well, I guess we'd probably better wrap it up. Um, I guess one last wrap-up question. Very briefly, uh, we'll start with you, Nathan. Uh, do you have any thoughts that you want to leave our audience with about church music, worship, uh, music and worship, whatever? Uh, all I would say is, you know, because this is so often a contentious subject, always go into discussions of this ready to hear reasons from the other side. There's almost always some reason uh, why there is a preference. Also be ready to challenge those reasons and to have your own reasons challenged. If we do that, I know it sounds very rationalist, uh, but if you go in willing to dialogue willing to reason together, to use the King James translation, uh, things generally will come out better. Michael? Uh, don't join a church and immediately start fighting about the music. Uh, st this is advice Dr. Wetmore gives in his book that I mentioned earlier. You need, to, uh, you need to become a real player in the life of the church and then bring it up gently and with, uh, with grace. A and remember that... Your taste is not what we're arguing over here. We're arguing over actual doctrine. Yeah, and I I, th I think I would uh, echo Nathan and expand, and it's not just be open to uh, you know when when you go into this discussion about church music, not just uh, to be open to the reasons that the other side produces, but to to try to develop a, some empathy to see what in the style of music that the person you're conversing to, uh, what, it, what it is about it that they appreciate, uh, what it is in their, uh, in their heart that, uh, that they see that music reflecting. Um, because, you know, if someone loves a style of music, it's not because it leaves them cold. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, th I think that's something that needs to, needs to be considered. Next week, what we got going on, Nathan? We are talking about classical music and specifically about Johann Sebastian Bach, the second of our music trilogy. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Well, um, in the meantime, if you want to set us straight on any of the uh, any of the comments that we've made this week thus far, or make any embarrassing drop edits, um, you know, containing the most incriminating of our pronouncements. Um, 
uh, please do so and then email them to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, also, once this, uh, well, once this posts, there will be uh, a, a post corresponding to it on our website, uh, christianhumanist.org slash chb, and you can also leave comments there. Uh, and also check that out in the coming week to, uh, you know, see what we write. You never know. Um, you know, Michael or I might actually be productive this week. Um, hey, I have one. It's it's lined up. It's ready to go. <sighs> oh, yes. Okay. I might be productive this week, said David with a sense of guilt. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's it. Um, so you, you gentlemen have a great week. And to all of our listeners... Uh, I wish you a great week as well. Uh, So this is David Grubbs uh, for Michael Farmer and for Nathan Gilmore at the Christian Humanist Podcast, leaving you with the words of Luther, let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.